This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight what we're going to cover is the primary diagnoses that people receive from physicians when they're dizzy and kind of how they present, how they're managed, and how you can kind of tell if you've been diagnosed correctly. And then also we're going to look at typical symptom presentations, the onset, the trigger, and the duration of dizziness and vertigo so that you can start to advocate for yourself to go to the right physician, give them the right information, and hopefully get the right type of care. And not only different types of physicians, but also physical therapists that specialize in vestibular rehabilitation like myself. And maybe you might need to see a chiropractor or a nutritionist. There's typically a team of providers that needs to be involved for a complete recovery from severe dizziness and vertigo. So before I, get too far, before I get too far into the content, I want to make sure to thank my two clinical mentors uh, in this area of my profession. Dr. Kristen Johnson is an associate professor at the University of St. Augustine for Health Sciences here in San Marcos, California. And Dr. Michael Schubert is an associate professor at the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, as well as the Department of Head and Neck Surgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Both of these clinicians are experts in my field and have taught me a number of courses, and they're the people I call when I get stumped with some of the cases I get because I am attracting some of the most difficult and complex cases in the world. People are traveling here to San Diego to see me, and I bounce ideas off these two, and I just want to make sure to thank them. I especially also want to thank the vestibular researchers who are putting out articles. You should have seen me the last few weeks reading articles night and day to get ready for this talk, and I just think that research is really important to inform clinicians on what's evidence-based and what works. And at the same time, we have a challenge right now in healthcare because the number of people that need care far exceeds the number of providers that are available to provide care. And so clinicians don't have a lot of time to read the research. So we have what I would call an evidence dissemination problem, where there's a lot of clinicians that don't read the research, especially clinicians that have a lot of experience. They don't have time. And then we have younger clinicians coming out of school that rely entirely on research to inform their practice. And they won't think outside the box if something is not evidence-based to do. And so I would just encourage all clinicians to read the research to read not only what is uh, in their own profession or their own specialty, but to read what other professions are doing as well. Like I like to read research from ENTs, ear, nose, and throat doctors, neurologists, nurses, emergency room doctors, physical therapists, chiropractors, and I even pulled a few articles from veterinary medicine just to see what they're doing with dizzy dogs. So, you know, that's one issue. And then the other thing is... um, One of my favorite vestibular researchers, researcher Susan Whitney, said at a course, just because there's no evidence to support an intervention doesn't mean that it doesn't work. And I think that we all need to remember that everything that's evidence-based first started with an idea by some clinician, and then it became proven to work. And so I I think it's important for clinicians to step outside the box of what's evidence-based and really persevere in figuring out the best way to help their patients reduce if not completely eliminate their symptoms, and that's what I do for people who consult with me. 
So this is really the bottom line of why we need to be informed about dizziness and vertigo, because it is the number one reason people over 75 go to the doctor and complain. It's a huge problem, and the ultimate result is this. We land on the ground, right? How many of you know someone who's fallen because of dizziness or vertigo? Let me see your hands. Yeah, so it's a huge deal, and if they get out of it unscathed, they're very lucky, but about 50% of people who fall will fall again within six months. So not only having education on fall prevention and what to do to prevent falls, but also figuring out what the root cause of the vertigo and dizziness is to resolve it, if not reduce it, for the person who's suffering So the first step, if you are someone who's suffering with dizziness and vertigo, is to make sure you tell your primary care doctor about it. There are a number of metabolic derangements that cause dizziness and vertigo, like anemia, like blood pressure problems, um, problems with the liver, the kidneys, the uh, blood sugar. There's a lot of different things, oxygen level, that your primary care doctor probably wants to check out to see if you have any of those problems. Um, if you have dizziness or vertigo. So that's one of the first steps is to make sure you tell your primary care doctor and they may refer you to some other specialists. Now in the state of California, we do have direct access to physical therapy, which means you could consult with a physical therapist who is a vestibular specialist like me, for example, um, without having a referral from your physician necessarily. Um, So I do always encourage people who call me to let their doctor know that they plan to consult with me and make sure their doctor knows they have dizziness. But I certainly get a lot of people who come straight to me um, because they just don't want to prolong or delay their care. And then typically what happens is people are referred for a lot of diagnostic tests. So what kind of diagnostic tests have you all heard of for dizziness? Let me hear you call out a few. MRI, CAT scan, CT scan, what else? What about cardiac testing? Some people get x-rays of their neck. So there's a lot of different diagnostic tests that are... um, prescribed for people with dizziness, but a lot of times they don't show the cause of the dizziness. Do you understand? Have you had the same experience? Yeah, everyone's nodding their head, yes. Yeah, so that's the interesting thing, is that these diagnostic tests are really, in a lot of ways, um, insufficient for diagnosing the cause of dizziness. And in fact, I I picked this one example here, which is an MRI, and you see at the bottom corner of the slide, it says, versus the HINTS exam. So there's research that shows that with a stroke that happens in the part of the brain where it causes dizziness or vertigo as the only symptom, an MRI does not always show or image that problem, sometimes for up to 10 days after the incident, okay? So sometimes people might go to the emergency room with a severe onset of dizziness and vertigo and get an MRI and it doesn't show the stroke, and they get sent home, and they say, oh, we think you have an inner ear problem. And then maybe the stroke evolves, and it finally shows up on an MRI, sometimes two, three, or up to 10 days later. And that's because of the location called the posterior fossa, which is a specific location in the brain where the only symptom of a stroke in that area a lot of times is dizziness and vertigo as an isolated symptom, okay? But interestingly enough, all the research that I read from the emergency department physicians said that this particular HINTS exam 
which is, can be done by a skilled clinician within one minute. It takes one minute to do. I know how to do it. I've trained hundreds of physical therapists to do it. It takes about one minute to do, and one study found it 100% sensitive to assessing for a stroke in that posterior fossa. Another study found it to be 91% sensitive. So then why are we relying on MRIs, which are only about 86% sensitive and definitely not the best diagnostic tool within the first 48 hours of a new onset of severe dizziness? Well, the reason is because a lot of clinicians aren't trained. And so there is an opportunity here for clinical skill development Okay, especially for physicians on the front line of dealing with patients with acute and severe dizziness. And so for myself, I would be available to work with any groups of physicians who might want to learn how to do that exam and be happy to train them on that. Because there's another study that showed that even junior neurology residents, which are basically doctors that just got out of school, were able to do this exam with a lot of success. And it was more predictive of a stroke within the first few days of the onset of isolated dizziness and vertigo than the MRI. Okay? So the bottom line from that last slide I want you to take home is that not all the causes of dizziness and vertigo show up on any diagnostic test. There's very many people that I see that have had a whole lot of diagnostic tests and nothing showed anything, okay? And so I'm going to talk to you tonight about the most common things that are missed by diagnostic tests. The example I gave you about the MRI and the HINTS exam is just one example to show you that a clinical exam by a skilled practitioner that actually uses their hands is a lot of times superior to diagnostic testing for people with dizziness. But those are hard to find nowadays, right? (laughs) Okay, and then a lot of times what happens is people just get put on medication for dizziness. What medication do you know of that people get for dizziness? Meclizine, that's the typical one. That's to treat the symptoms, okay? It's a CNS suppressant. Treats the symptoms, and it's at this point, it's really only recommended for the first 48 hours of a new onset of an acute inner ear problem, like an infection in the inner ear or the nerve that goes to the inner ear, and that's really just for your comfort. But beyond that, that medication, meclizine, can actually interfere with the brain's ability to recover from inner ear infections because it is a suppressant of the central nervous system, and that's how it works to relieve the symptoms. The other thing with meclizine is guess what one of the side effects is? Dizziness. And drowsiness and blurry vision. So I see a lot of older people that start falling once they get put on that medicine. Um, The other medications that are commonly given for dizziness are benzodiazepines like Valium. And those increase the risk of hip fracture in older adults by 50%. So you can see why I'm sort of on fire about this topic. And I say to those that I love and care about and care for, just taking this medication for the rest of your life is what I would consider not good enough unless we've gone through everything we can to figure out what the root causes of your symptoms and determine that all we can do is medicate it. But if we go to medication as one of the first steps and we just hold you there, it's not really the optimal for your situation. Would you agree with that? Okay. The other problem with all these diagnostic tests is that it costs a lot of money, okay? An MRI costs about $1,000, okay? All these different test people are getting cost a lot of money. And it's costing your health insurance company money. It might be costing you money. 
And so, you know, if you can find a skilled provider that will take a good and thorough history of your symptoms and do a hands-on skilled exam, that's going to be superior to uh, diagnostic testing for many, many conditions that cause dizziness and vertigo. So that's a key point, and I want you to know that so you can advocate for yourself and make sure that you navigate yourself to the right providers. So this is my favorite diagnosis that people tell me they got. (laughs) Have any of you been diagnosed with vertigo? A few of you, yeah. So this is my favorite. It's kind of like going to the doctor and saying I have back pain, and they say, I'm going to diagnose you with back pain. You say, thanks, that's great. What am I going to do now? So um, I had a, a number of patients who come to me, and they say, oh, I've seen all these different doctors. I've had all these different tests. It's been going on for weeks, months, you know, sometimes even years up to 40, 50 years for certain people, depending on, you know, what their cause of their symptoms is. And they say, and the only diagnosis I have is vertigo. And I say, well, we already knew that. It doesn't really help, okay? So I would say if you have a diagnosis of vertigo, I would encourage you to continue to advocate for yourself to assess for really the most important thing, which is the root cause. Okay, would you all agree with that statement? I see all the heads shaking. Yes, let's go for the root cause. So we all kind of are in uh, uniform agreement that, you know, medication might be okay for short-term management. And for some people, maybe long-term management if we can't figure out what the cause is and we want them to be comfortable. But in general, we want to keep digging until we find the root cause. We want to advocate for ourselves to find the root cause and that's kind of the direction we're going to go with the talk today, is the root cause analysis. I'll just share with you here briefly, I um, got diagnosed since the last time I saw you guys, I got diagnosed with a thyroid problem, and same thing, my doctor was going to put me on thyroid medication, the synthetic thyroid hormones, and I thought, well, I don't want to be on this for the rest of my life, so then I went to you might remember, uh, those of you who saw my last lecture, Diane Kusunose, the physical therapist who's also a nutritionist and a biofeedback specialist. Um, her website is naturalbalancing.com. And I went to her with my problem, with my thyroid problem, and she said, well, why don't we figure out why your thyroid is not working? Why did it shut down? And it turned out she, t- she tested me for root cause. And it turned out I have some food allergies, like gluten sensitivity and dairy sensitivity and things like that. And because I was having food and digestive problems, that was causing my immune system to react to the foods I was eating. And then my immune system was getting overexcited and it started attacking my own cells, like my thyroid. And so we were able to um, figure out that if I could fix my digestion, then I could alleviate my thyroid problem, then I don't have to stay on thyroid medicine for the rest of my life. And so that's an example of, in my own life, digging for the root cause instead of just, you know, making my destiny be about staying on this medication for the rest of my life, okay? So here are two key points about dizziness that I want to make sure you know. Dizziness is usually multifactorial. And I've had a number of patients tell me that when they go to the doctor, the doctor's usually looking for just one cause of their dizziness. And when I tell them, oh, I think you have like three or four, maybe five or six or nine or ten things contributing to your symptoms, they say, what? People were trying to figure out just one thing. But see, a lot of people have multiple causes of dizziness. And so we need to keep that in mind. What The way I like to approach this 
is that I want to account for every single symptom that you have, okay? So every symptom that you have, I want to have a root cause of why you're having that because the root cause is going to drive the recommendation, okay? So in order for me to know whether you need exercises or treatments as a vestibular rehab specialist, um, or whether you need to consult with another provider, like a chiropractor or a manual physical therapist or a cardiologist or a neurologist or an ENT, I need to figure out what's causing your symptoms so I can tell you the way I think you can best resolve them. And so that's the key with the root cause is it's going to drive the recommendations. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's the reason why the diagnosis of vertigo is really not that great because it just tells us the symptom. So first and foremost, those of you who saw my last lecture and you heard Dr. Camille Newton talking, she talked a lot about medications contributing to dizziness and vertigo with side effects. And so I'd recommend for you to hear her talk because she is an experienced physician and was discussing that in detail. But what I'll tell you in the way I approach medications causing dizziness and vertigo is when I consult with a patient, I write down every medicine that they're on, and then I look them all up to see if dizziness is a side effect or vertigo is a side effect. And I would encourage you to look at the insert when you pick up your medicine. A lot of people just throw it away. But keep that, check it out, and see if your your dizziness symptoms started within two weeks of starting a new medicine, because that might be a side effect. You might need your doctor to adjust your dosage or change the medication for you. Or maybe that's not an option, and then you just know that's the cause. The other thing we want to be aware of is the interactions with alcohol and interactions uh, with other medications. So there's an app that I like to use called Epocrates. It's E-P-O-C-R-A-T-E-S. And that's a great one. You type in all your medicines and hit check for interactions, and it pops up any interactions that you might be having. Another common cause of dizziness and vertigo is... um, IV antibiotics and certain types of chemotherapy agents. They might have this as a side effect because they might affect the vestibular system. So just to give you an example, I recently treated a woman who was in the intensive care unit with a severe respiratory infection like a pneumonia, and she was um, on IV antibiotics to fight that infection and um, came out of there with her. She, you know, she, she was able to recover. It saved her life. But then she had no vestibular system in her inner ears. The medication she had been given completely wiped it out. So, you know, preserving life at this point was more important. But now she doesn't have any dizziness when she's sitting still. But when she gets up and tries to stand or walk or turn her head while she's walking, she gets dizzy. And that's from uh, inner ear problems that were caused by the IV antibiotics. So you're going to see that with people that have really severe infections, maybe someone that had... um, an infection, infected hardware after like a total hip or total knee surgery or some kind of severe infection where they end up in the hospital or in uh, getting IV antibiotics typically is the cause of that. And those folks usually respond pretty well to vestibular rehab. So that would be a good reason to see a physical therapist that specializes in the vestibular system like me. Or um, sometimes people end up with some level of permanent disability from that because they just don't have any more balance from their inner ear left if the medication wiped out all the hair cells in their inner ears. Now, anxiety disorders and PTSD play a big role in dizziness and vertigo. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental health disorder in the United States right now. And what I've seen here is that people with anxiety tend not to have a lot of awareness of their breathing mechanics. 
And they sometimes will either, um, if they're having an anxious moment or a panic attack, they'll hold their breath, and that can make them dizzy, lightheaded, okay? Or they might hyperventilate, so they're breathing too fast, and that can make them dizzy also. So those are some mechanics of breathing that could cause dizziness with people with anxiety. And then I've seen dizziness and vertigo interact with PTSD in three very interesting ways. First of all, some people have such severe episodes of dizziness and vertigo that they actually get PTSD from it, okay? So I've had a number of people that say, I have PTSD from my episode of vertigo. And then when I go to try to do my exam or test them, their responses are hypervigilant. They're sort of freaking out throughout my whole exam because they're so affected emotionally by what they went through before. Even if my exam doesn't provoke that severe of symptoms, their response is really exaggerated because they're traumatized from what they went through before. So sometimes we can see PTSD caused by vertigo. Then sometimes we see vertigo caused by PTSD. And that would be um, like if someone has PTSD from another reason, and again, they have panic attacks or something like that from flashbacks, that can cause the holding of the breath or the hyperventilation that could cause uh, lightheadedness, dizziness, or even vertigo for some people. And then the third way I've seen PTSD interact with dizziness and vertigo are people who, for example, the veterans that are coming back from the Middle East right now, if they've been exposed to a roadside bomb, for example, that's very traumatic experience, especially if people they were with got wounded or killed in any way, and that blast from the roadside bomb can cause uh, the crystals in the inner ear to break loose causing them to have true vertigo in their inner ear, and then also PTSD from the emotional experience, all from one incident or series of incidents that they went through in a war zone. So those are the three different ways that I've seen PTSD interact with dizziness and vertigo. And I would say that it needs to be addressed in order for people to have the best outcomes. Because when someone has anxiety, their brain is going to be very limited as far as its ability to recover from the dizziness and vertigo symptoms. So a lot of times people might need mental health support while they're also in rehabilitation for the dizziness and vertigo if this is one of their um, contributing factors. So in terms of the cardiac system, some of the more common diagnoses in terms of cardiology that might cause dizziness and vertigo could be blood pressure that's too high, blood pressure that's too low, um, problems with the valves being insufficient, and also problems with the heart rhythm. So this is pretty well picked up on by physicians. I've found a lot of primary care doctors are doing a really good job picking up on cardiac problems causing dizziness. I think this is something physicians do really well and referring to cardiology when appropriate. I will tell you, The cardiologist in this community that I work with the most closely tells me that most of the people he gets referred to him for dizziness don't have a true cardiac problem. So there's a lot of people that are going to cardiology sort of just in case, and they're not really coming up with a true cardiac problem. But for those that are, I think it's life-saving sometimes to get an appropriate cardiac diagnosis and get on the right medication. One thing I see a lot with older people that are on heart medication for um, especially atrial fibrillation, which is that irregular heart rhythm, is medication errors, okay? So it's currently estimated about 30 to 50% of older adults take their medications improperly. (laughs) 
And I know, for example, my grandma, uh, when she had the flu, she forgot to take all her medications, okay? And then she ended up in the hospital because her heart rate was up over 200 because she had atrial fibrillation and she forgot to take her heart meds because she was so sick with the flu. So that's something that's really important is if you're on a medication for your heart, Somebody probably needs to know, like your spouse or your children or something like that, and make sure you're taking your medication as prescribed, even if you're sick or you're down and out, because medication errors with cardiac meds can be something that lands you in the hospital. It's very serious business. Um, so this slide is kind of to represent the host of neurological problems, which are problems with your brain that can cause dizziness and vertigo. Okay, um, some There are some... Uh, diagnoses on this slide that are from the inner ear, like the BPPV and the labyrinthitis, which we'll talk about in more detail. But this slide just kind of represents um, a list of central nervous system diagnoses that would likely be picked up on by a neurologist. And people with uh, multiple sclerosis, for example, or a history of a stroke, they might have dizziness at rest, they might have dizziness with certain motions or certain positions, and that should always be considered when someone has persistent chronic dizziness at a low level or if they have uh, persistent dizziness in certain positions that doesn't resolve with vestibular rehabilitation for the crystals uh, that are involved with BPPV, which we'll talk about uh, in a few minutes. So I just want to mention this slide to say that underlying neurological problems are always something we should consider um, if someone has persistent dizziness that doesn't respond to vestibular rehabilitation or uh, is kind of constant or intermittent in certain positions. And typically, neurologists are pretty good at picking up on these and diagnosing and assessing these. So that's where neurology can really help us with this type of uh, problem and complaint of dizziness and vertigo. And in this lecture, we don't have time to go through each of these diagnoses individually just because of time constraints, but I think it's just worth mentioning that any problems with the brain like this can cause dizziness or vertigo at rest or in certain positions. Now we're going to kind of get into um, more diagnosis-specific presentations to kind of help you if you can say like, oh yeah, that's me, okay? Um, so this gentleman, unfortunately, is suffering from a migraine, which I've had a problem with since I was about 10 years old. And I can tell you, I've ended up in the emergency room about at least 20 times because of uncontrolled vomiting with these, right? And so that is recommended if you have uncontrolled vomiting uh, with a migraine that you would go to the emergency room for IV hydration. But typically, in terms of migraine, this is the great mimicker of all causes of dizziness. And this one is something that a lot of people miss that they because they say, well, I don't have a headache. Okay, but one thing you should know is that migraine is actually a neurological condition and a headache is not necessarily required to diagnose it. Some people that get headaches with this, those headaches are really bad and they throb usually on one side of the head. But there's certainly people I've met that don't get a headache with the migraine, but they definitely have migraines. And so certain um, presentations of migraines are usually associated with sensitivity to light and sound. Like people just don't want any light. They want to be in the dark. They don't want any noise. Sensitivity to motion. They don't want to move around. Okay. It can have a gradual onset or a fast onset depending on the trigger. 
So like if lack of proper sleep, lack of proper diet or stress is the trigger, somebody might like say wake up with it in the morning, for example. But if the trigger is work-related stress, maybe the migraine comes on during the day while they're at work and peaks when they get home or something. Um, Migraines, typically, the person is also sensitive to flickering lights even in between episodes. They don't like to be around strobe lights or flickering lights. And I've found for myself... I'm very sensitive to LED lights, which have a base function of flickering. That's part of how they work. So um, they might not be good for people with migraines. And um, for people with migraines, typically, they might also have sensitivity to motion, like moving around makes them dizzy or nauseous even in between major episodes. The typical duration for a migraine is usually about... 24 to 48 hours, but I'll tell you I've had some that have lasted for weeks, and I've certainly met patients that have had some that have lasted for weeks. I had one gentleman that had one for about six months. Um, So, you know, in terms of dealing with this, a lot of people go to medications for this. Um, Diet, lifestyle, stress relief, good sleep, um, certain food sensitivities like uh, chocolate, red wine, and cheese are typical migraine triggers. But basically, people with what are called migraine brains, which are brains that get upset very easily with um, neurological triggers, um, people with migraine brains just need to take really good care of their brain and make sure, kind of treat it like like a Porsche, you know. Take really good care of it and um, try to avoid triggers because once an episode starts, it's kind of difficult to stop and it can really debilitate people. So that's migraines and that's always something to consider. Again, that's the great mimicker of all causes of dizziness. It can be acute and severe, quick onset. It can be recurrent and it can cause positional dizziness where they're only dizzy in certain positions. So Meniere's disease, how many of you know someone who's been diagnosed with Meniere's disease? I see half the hands in the room going up. Me, me, okay. So um, Meniere's disease, whenever somebody tells me they have Meniere's disease, my first response is, who says? Okay, who said that? Who told you that? I want to know, and how did they figure it out? Because this is the great diagnosis that's overdiagnosed by non-specialty physicians. Because basically, if someone has Meniere's disease, they're just going to sort of settle into having dizziness for the rest of their life, and they're not going to ask a whole lot of questions, okay? And people with dizziness and vertigo tend to kind of be a thorn in the side of all practitioners who don't specialize in this, okay? I love it. When someone calls me and says, I have dizziness and vertigo, I say, bring it on. Let's figure it out. But most clinicians I know that don't specialize in this, when they have someone with um, dizziness and vertigo, they kind of go, oh, boy, this is going to be a tricky case because it is very difficult. And a lot of times patients are not very reliable or consistent with reporting their symptoms. And the um, distinguishing features on the clinical hands-on exam to diagnose different types of dizziness and vertigo are very subtle. So this is a real challenge for a lot of non-specialty clinicians to diagnose the underlying root cause of dizziness and vertigo, and that's why so many people get diagnosed with Meniere's disease. I can tell you that typical presentation of Meniere's disease looks like somebody who was outside on a hot day drinking margaritas and eating, you know, chips and salsa. Maybe the margaritas had salt on the rim of the glass, so they got dehydrated and they had too much salt, and then they wake up the next day with a Meniere's episode and maybe end up in the hospital. Okay, so Meniere's is gonna be lasting for hours to days, and it's usually a severe dizziness uh, and vertigo, sometimes nausea, vomiting, uh, difficulty walking, 
pressure in the ear or fullness in the ear, um, some, the, the fluctuating hearing loss. So they might have a hearing loss while they're in the middle of the episode and then their hearing returns to normal or close to normal when the episode is over. And the ringing in the ear is also one of the symptoms that people report more like a roaring sound when the Meniere's episode is happening. So most of the people I've met that told me they have Meniere's disease, actually it turned out they had something else like uh, the crystals in the ear that we're going to get to, or they had um, another inner ear problem called a hypofunction that we'll get to also uh, that's caused by an inner ear infection. So there's a lot of other things that might cause dizziness and vertigo. So if you're one of the people that's been diagnosed with Meniere's disease, I would really suggest for you to get a second opinion because it might be that you have something else causing this problem that could be reduced if not completely eliminated. And um, typically with... um, Meniere's disease, this is going to be an episodic thing, kind of like the migraines, where it's like recurrent episodes throughout the lifespan, okay? So here's the good news for people that do have true Meniere's disease. Uh, When I was reviewing the chiropractic literature, I came upon um, some work by a chiropractor named Michael Burkhan, who's presented at all the Meniere's international conferences for the last 12 or 13 years. And he's done some really interesting work with what I would call a case series, where he doesn't have like a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial, which is the kind of research we're looking for. That's the real, you know, um, the, the most reliable research. But what he has is what I would call like a case series, where he's reporting the outcomes of 300 patients. And what he's reporting as a chiropractor is that when he adjusts this bone, which you see up here in the red, which is called the atlas or the upper cervical, the first cervical bone that connects your skull to the rest of your vertebral column, that's the first cervical bone, which is called C1, and we also call it the atlas bone, just to make it confusing for you. And so he's saying that when he adjusts this bone, he's getting rid of Meniere's disease in 291 out of 300 people in one of his case series, okay? So when I read that, I thought, well, I'm going to try it. And so for the people that I did my part in vestibular rehab, but it seemed like they were still having episodic uh, vertigo coming that presented like Meniere's disease with the ringing and the fullness and the hearing loss and all that, and I referred them to some of my colleagues who are specialists in upper cervical manipulation That's a real specialty, and not all physical therapists can do it, and not all chiropractors can do it. It's a real specialty. And I can count the people in San Diego who can adjust this bone on one hand. Um, So it's a very specialized treatment, the upper cervical. But the patients that I've sent to these type of practitioners that thought they had Meniere's disease have been getting better. And I even had one woman who... um, had been in a car accident. She started having uh, dizziness when she lied down and rolled over in bed, and then she was having spontaneous episodes of severe vertigo with ringing and roaring and fullness in her ear. And so I treated the dizziness from lying down and rolling in bed with vestibular rehab for crystals, which I'll talk about soon. And then I referred her to a colleague of mine that specializes in upper cervical for her Meniere's-like episodes, and she sent me a message saying, it's a miracle. I'm cured. Thank you so much. Okay? So that's something to really consider. And I'll tell you that um, I read a lot of research where case studies within the profession of physical therapy where the vestibular expert also tries to treat the patient's neck pain. And in those presented case studies, the patient is not getting 100% better. 
because typically a vestibular expert like myself doesn't also have the high level of training they would need to adjust this bone. That would be a very rare find, okay? And conversely, someone that's really well-trained in adjusting this bone probably doesn't have the skill to fix crystals or other things in the inner ear. So typically, in order to get a full recovery um, from something like a car accident, you probably want to see a vestibular specialist to get your inner ear assessed and treated and usually see an upper cervical practitioner to get this bone assessed and treated. And if you have a problem with this bone, typically you're going to have crunching when you turn your head. So go ahead and turn your head right and left. And if you, if you hear any crunching in that part of your neck where your neck meets your skull, that's one of the indications. Another indication is a restriction in rotation. So people that can only turn a limited amount to one side, okay, or both sides. And then another key factor that always um, tips me off is if somebody says, well, I feel better with my dizziness when I take ibuprofen. So if they take an over-the-counter anti-inflammatory and that cures dizziness, a lot of times I'm honing in on this bone and I'm going, okay, it's something in your neck. And the interesting thing about Michael Burkhan's research is he's finding people who had whiplash injury 15 years prior and then they got diagnosed with Meniere's 15 years later because this was a chronic problem, but because they had the whiplash incident so uh, far back in their history, they don't even usually report it, okay? So people aren't associating those two things. But that is something that can bring hope to people that do have true Meniere's disease, okay? It's really exciting. So this is just a diagram to show you that upper cervical bone. This is a side view, and to show how that upper cervical bone can put pressure on the brain stem if it's out of place, okay? That brain stem is where the brain and spinal cord are meeting. It can also uh, potentially restrict the fluid called uh, cerebrospinal fluid, which flows around all those neurological structures. Uh, it's theorized that it can restrict the blood flow to your brain because we do have the vertebral arteries passing uh, through some holes in that atlas bone. And then it's theorized that it can affect the flow of the endolymph in the inner ear, which is how it, it causes the presentation of Meniere's disease. And I'm telling you again, this is a theory, and I would say it's um, not something that's widely known or agreed upon, but it's worked a lot for my patients, and it's apparently worked a lot for this chiropractor. So I would tell you, you know, again, this is something that might not be necessarily evidence-based, but is worth a shot. And um, keep in mind that Things that are not evidence-based, sometimes they do work. They just haven't had a lot of researchers doing a lot of time to prove them. Okay, so this is another way you might be able to tell. If you have an atlas problem that's causing your dizziness and vertigo, you can put touch right where her finger is, which is that junction right behind your ear where your jaw and the angle of your jaw and your ear and your neck kind of meet. And if you have tenderness right in there, that's the side of that atlas bone, okay? So that's another way I assess people is I poke them right there, and if they go, oh, that hurt, Dr. Bell, I say, okay, it's probably your atlas. But I will tell you there's a number of people I've treated that don't have any tenderness there, and they still do have atlas issues, okay? So that's just one way you can kind of check yourself to see if you're tender right there. Now here's another interesting thing about this atlas. See how the, the, the spine is sort of like one long column? And it's all connected with ligaments and soft tissue and discs, okay? So it's sort of like, it's all sort of one unit, and it moves. Um, when there's movement, say, at the tailbone, it causes movement up and down the spine, okay? So it's all linked and connected. And so one thing that 
I find very interesting is that the atlas can sublux typically from uh, multiple causes. One is direct trauma, like the whiplash injury, or like a head injury, or like a football player or a boxer that's getting their bell rung, okay, or some uh, domestic violence, or anything where people are hitting their head. The atlas can also sublux from indirect physical forces. So if there's some kind of issue down here at the tailbone, like people with pain in their low back or pain in their tailbone, that can cause the whole spine to shift and cause the atlas to sublux at the very top of the spine. So I had a lady I saw recently who said, whenever I get dizzy, it's always when I have low back pain. So what do you think I said? I think it's your atlas. Okay, so it's not the low back pain that's directly causing the dizziness, but it's the low back pain that's indirectly causing the atlas to shift, and then that's causing the dizziness. Does that make sense? And the atlas can cause migraines as well, um, so it's worth taking a look at if you have neck pain with dizziness. The other two things that I think are really pretty fascinating that can cause the atlas to sublux are emotional forces. So if someone's really anxious and their muscles in their neck get really tense, that can cause the atlas to get out of alignment. And I can relate to that. How many of you can relate to that? Neck tension when you're stressed? Yeah. And then the other one, which is very interesting to me, is uh, chemical forces. So I have a a chronic problem with atlas subluxation because I was in a few car accidents a long time ago. And I go to regularly to a manual physical therapist and a chiropractor, and they both work on me. But um, my atlas keeps popping out, and I I couldn't figure out why. And then Diane uh, helped me figure out it was because I had food sensitivities, and she showed me on a, a chiropractic reflex chart that food sensitivities and food allergies are associated with chronic subluxation of the first cervical vertebrae, or that atlas, okay? So they're neurologically linked. And so now I'm watching my diet not just for the thyroid healing, but also to stop my neck, my atlas, from popping out of alignment. And of course, trying to keep my stress down. Good luck with that, right? (laughs) Okay. So now we're going to kind of move on to the inner ear discussion, which is really my specialty. And this is what, so a lot of people come to me for consultation, and I kind of do the differential diagnosis assessment of what I think is causing their problems based on their history and based on my physical exam. And my exam takes about two hours to do because it's comprehensive, and it includes what a lot of different disciplines would look at. What would an ENT look at? What would a neurologist look at? What would a cardiologist look at? Because I've studied with all these different kinds of people to create my methodology. But where people come back to me for treatment is when it's related to the inner ear, okay? Because I am an expert in vestibular rehabilitation, which is a specialty within physical therapy. And you can find a provider for this on the Vestibular Disorders Association website, which is called vestibular.org. Now, as far as the inner ear, um, I could come back and do a whole talk for you guys on this if you want. I teach a lot of courses on this, and it's awesome stuff. Uh, It's really cool physics uh, involved in the inner ear. But basically, what I want to tell you about this is that um, the inner ear can have really two main main problems. It can have... um, sort of, uh, well, it can get infected, okay? And the infection is going to be either a labyrinthitis or a neuritis, vestibular neuritis. And what that looks like, the presentation there, is a, um, an onset of really severe vertigo kind of all, at all times that lasts for days and may last as long as weeks. 
Um, a lot of people with this infection of the inner ear end up going to the emergency room um, because it's kind of scary how bad and severe it can be. And then uh, vestibular rehab is recommended for this if someone diagnoses you with vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis. The inner ear infection is typically preceded by um, an oral herpes outbreak, which is a virus that lives in our face. And then uh, for some people that get cold sores and then uh, also can be preceded by a gastrointestinal flu or an upper respiratory infection. And the theory is that that virus that was in the body traveled through the neurological system out to the ear. It can also be the labyrinthitis can also be um, preceded by a middle ear infection. So a lot of people that have chronic ear infections, it can travel inward as well. So it can kind of come from inside the body out or outside in through the ear. So now we come to BPPV, which is really um, the, the condition that is the most common inner ear problem for people with dizziness and vertigo. And I brought a prop to explain this to you. Basically, BPPV is crystals in the inner ear that have a job, but they break away and they run away from home. And they go floating in this fluid And there's three places in the right ear and three places in the left ear where they can be found. So it's kind of like your kids sneaking out, and you know they might be at six different friends' houses. And that's where you got to look to find them, okay? And so uh, one of the challenges with this condition is that the only 10 to 20% of people with BPPV get treated appropriately when they report these symptoms to their doctor because a lot of people don't know how to treat it. But... When you go to the right provider and you have these crystals that have floated away from home, this can be successfully treated in one to two treatments 90% of the time with a complete resolution, so like a cure. And this is something that offers the most benefits in almost all of clinical medicine that is the fastest and the best resolution in terms of treatment for a specific disorder. So it's really exciting to find the right provider and to get them to fix your dizziness if you have these type of crystals loose in your ear. And I just want to show you why somebody with this condition, BPPV, which stands for benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, meaning it's not a disease or any kind of pathology, and it comes and goes in certain positions, um, so it's not a constant feeling. Uh, I want to show you why that is, and this is a model, this hula hoop is a model of one of the canals of the inner ear. And on your diagram there, you see three canals that are all kind of interconnected. We have three in the right ear, three in the left ear. They're called anterior, posterior, and horizontal. Okay, and there's a set of three in the right ear and a set of three in the left ear. And if the crystals are in the semicircular canal, they really only give symptoms when they shift. Okay, so if you move your head in the plane of motion that would mimic rolling the hula hoop, that's going to give symptoms, okay? But if I were to move my head this way or this way, do you think that the little beads inside my hula hoop are really moving that much? Not really, okay? So the beads in my hula hoop aren't moving too much when I'm going this way or this way, but when I move in the plane of motion, that is uh, in alignment with the canal, that causes symptoms. And that's how we test and find which canal is the involved one with the crystals. We have to move the patient's head in certain specific motions and see which one causes their symptoms or which one causes their eyes to bounce around 
or their dizziness to be provoked. And then we know we found the canal that has their crystals in it, and we can treat it. Okay? The most complicated case I've seen of this is someone who had two head injuries consecutively and had the crystals in five out of six canals. And we were able to fix it, but it took about six visits because you can only treat usually one canal per visit. Peripheral artery disease is something that we usually gloss over in terms of dizziness and vertigo, but it can cause dizziness and vertigo in three ways. Number one, when we stand up, if we don't have good um, integrity of the blood vessels in our legs, we can get dizzy from blood pressure dropping when we stand up. And also, uh, problems with blood flow affect the inner ear, okay? So so people who have um, problems with dizziness that kind of come on Uh, gradually or after they've had a period of immobility, they may have an injury to their inner ear that's from a lack of blood flow, okay, that we're just picking up on. There's another um, diagnosis called presbyastasis, and this is a general reduction in the quality of sensory inputs with normal aging, okay? And so this has to do with the eyes, the ears, and the feet, and even the way the brain processes. So this is called presbyostasis or presbyastasis. And this tends to respond really well to vestibular rehab. So the interesting thing about vestibular rehabilitation physical therapy is that it even works for people that don't have a diagnosed inner ear problem. And then the final diagnosis that I want to mention to you that's commonly given for people with dizziness and vertigo is called mal de barkman syndrome. Have you guys heard of that? Okay, so this one, it typically is preceded by um, an airplane ride or a cruise or some kind of uh, plane or boat trip. And then when the person gets off the plane or the boat, they just feel like they're rocking or swaying or tilting all the time. And this is typically relieved with motion. So that's kind of how you can tell. If the person's sitting still and they feel like they're rocking or tilting or swaying, and then they feel better when they start moving, that is uh, an indication they might truly have this syndrome. I've seen a lot of people misdiagnosed with this that actually have BPPV and can be treated. Um, One of the best ways I've seen someone cope with this is she got a rocking chair in her house and just started sitting on it all the time, and that really helped. And then there are some specialists within the field of vestibular rehabilitation that do well with these cases, but typically uh, these people need to return to exercise and do a lot of grounding to reorient themselves to the solid surface that they're now on. And they can recover, but it sometimes takes weeks to months to recover from this issue. Okay, so now um, we're going to kind of go through typical symptom presentations and what the root cause may be. So we're going to go through this a little faster because now you've been oriented to the major things that cause dizziness and vertigo, the major diagnoses, and I'm going to kind of give you a clue of what might be related to certain presentations. And I will say when you go to work with your provider to advocate for yourself to get the best care, the best thing you can do is let them know the onset of your symptoms, what seems to trigger it, and what the duration is. So what seems to, uh, what's the onset, initial onset, what the triggers are, what the duration is, and you also wanna let them know if it's a constant feeling or a recurrent feeling, um, and then how severe it is, what seems to make it better, what seems to make it worse. Okay, so people that tell me they wake up with dizziness first thing in the morning, That's typically going to be BPPV. That's the crystals in the inner ear, okay? So someone calls me and says, Doc, I'm really bad first thing in the morning. As the day goes on, I feel better. 
I say, all right, we need to treat you for BPPV, okay? The other thing that can cause this is someone that sleeps uh, in a weird position with their neck, and so the neck can cause dizziness in the morning if they have a weird sleeping position where their neck is not well supported. Somebody that has dizziness 24-7, if it's really severe and it came on quickly and it's associated with the inability to sit by yourself with your arms folded or stand or walk, or a sudden hearing loss, or chest pain, or anything like that, you want to go to the emergency room, okay? So if it's a sudden, severe onset, and it's constant, and it's associated with the inability to sit without assistance, the inability to stand and walk, um, the inability to, uh, excuse me, sudden hearing loss, severe vomiting, or chest pain, those are all reasons you would want to go to the emergency room. That could indicate a stroke, actually, okay, if it's severe. And then other people that have dizziness 24-7, but it's like a chronic problem, they might have a chronic inner ear problem that hasn't been addressed. They might have an anxiety problem. Um, They might have a medication side effect. So so, they could have a vision disorder, like some kind of visual issue. So people with dizziness 24-7 would be really well served to consult with a vestibular specialist. Again, you can find them at vestibular.org to get a comprehensive assessment, and then they may need to see a number of different specialists if it's a chronic problem that's 24-7. People that get dizziness that lasts for days, um, often this is going to be a migraine or a Meniere's episode, okay? Or it could be an atlas subluxation. If they did something that aggravated their neck, like um, painting a ceiling, because leaning back in extension or rotating the neck with the head back causes the atlas to pop out, um, or they uh, say were hanging curtains, or they sat in the front row at a movie theater, that can cause the atlas, that first cervical bone, to pop out of alignment, and it might last for a few days. Okay, um, so I would say if someone says to me they have dizziness and vertigo for days, um, I would want to know, is it a recurrent thing? And then I'm thinking migraine or Meniere's, or is it just after a certain event, like after I painted my ceiling, then I'm going to think, okay, it's probably your neck. Um, Again, with the dizziness for days, that could also be um, more acute vestibular issue Uh, Or it could be, there's a number of things that could be. So for that, I would say you would want to see a vestibular specialist for that as well. Now, somebody that has a concussion that hit their head, uh, this particular photo shows a man who hit his head with an actual injury to the head. But concussions can actually also happen from uh, no external impact. So say I'm in a car and someone slams on their brakes and I kind of jerk forward and back, but I don't actually hit my head on anything. Just that strain of the tissue inside my brain and the brain bumping into the skull inside my brain can cause a concussion. And with concussions, typically um, there's a chemical change in the brain after the concussion that causes uh, concussion issues even if it doesn't show up on an MRI or a CT scan. So structural damage to the brain might show up on the scan, but the chemical changes that happen in the brain after a concussion won't show up on a scan. But these people, uh, they may have dizziness, vertigo, headaches, foggy memory, balance problems, maybe mood changes. And so the best thing to do after a concussion is to rest. Okay, typically concussion symptoms go away within two weeks. And so rest is really recommended. Even resting your brain, like no reading, no crossword puzzles, just really resting 
And then after about two weeks, uh, if you're still having symptoms, you would definitely want to see a concussion specialist and may need some focused rehabilitation. People with concussions also commonly get crystals knocked loose in their inner ear. Does that make sense? Yeah, because of the trauma, it knocks the crystal loose, so they may need to see a vestibular specialist to reposition the crystals, and they also need their atlas to get checked because the trauma from the concussion is kind of like a whiplash injury and can cause the atlas to pop out. So that's kind of the unhappy triad I look for with concussions is, do we have symptoms of a brain injury from this? Do we have symptoms of crystals in the ear that got knocked loose? And is the neck involved, the upper cervical involved from the uh, concussion? So people that have symptoms right here lying down like that, flat, this is my grandpa, by the way, handsome guy. He's 96 years old right now, doesn't take any medication. Go, Grandpa. Um, so people that get dizzy lying flat like this typically are going to have the BPPV. That's going to be the crystals loose, okay? And that can be treated, like I said, in one to two treatments about 90% of the time by a properly skilled provider. Uh, people who lie, get dizzy when they lie down in bed, a lot of times that's going to be the BPPV, again, the crystals. Dizziness when you roll over is a lot of times going to be the BPPV also. So those three symptoms, dizziness, lying down, rolling over, and lying flat on your back, are something that a vestibular specialist will likely be able to resolve, if not completely eliminate for you, in only a few sessions. Um, again, I just want to reiterate the fact that certain neurological problems like multiple sclerosis, for example, can cause dizziness and migraines, can cause dizziness in all different positions. And so uh, what we would do is see if that person responded to the treatment for the crystals. And if they respond, then we know, you know, that's, that's the underlying cause there. And that should be a pretty quick resolution. Dizziness looking up like this can be the crystals in the inner ear, which would be treated by a vestibular specialist, or it can be the atlas, again, that upper cervical bone, which would need to be treated by an upper cervical specialty chiropractor or manual physical therapist. Dizziness looking down, same thing, can be the BPPV or the atlas. Turning the head to the side can be the same. Uh, the BPPV crystals can be the atlas, and it also can be this muscle, which I haven't mentioned too much, if you see that muscle, it's really prominent on the front of her neck from the back of her ear going down to her breastbone and her collarbone right there, that one. That's our sternocleidomastoid muscle. And when that muscle is unhappy, dizziness is one of the symptoms of trigger points in that muscle. So I treated a gentleman who was a writer, an author, and he sat at his desk all the time like this, okay? And he had terrible vertigo, and it was just because these two muscles were really upset, and they had trigger points that were causing dizziness for him. So we can treat that with physical therapy as well. And then there are some postural changes you would want to make to prevent that muscle from being upset, like um, trying to avoid sitting with your head flexed too much, like on a laptop, trying to avoid prolonged leaning back, like if you are working on the computer and you get lazy and you start slouching and bring your head up, that's overstretching those muscles. And then People with a leg length discrepancy, like one leg longer than the other, that limp, can also uh, get problems with this particular muscle. So that would be something that would be good to go to physical therapy for. If you feel, when you pinch that muscle in the front of your neck, if you feel pain right there, okay, because that's something that can be treated. Physical therapists treat muscles. This is another example. A lot of people I know with dizziness and vertigo sleep upright because that's a good way to avoid triggering those crystals because they haven't learned they can get them treated yet. And this sleeping upright can also upset those muscles. 
So look at how this woman, her, that muscle in the front of her neck is very tense. Do you see it sticking out there? Okay, so sleeping upright can also cause tension in those two muscles I was showing you, those sternocleidomastoid on the right and the left, and that can be a culprit of dizziness for some people. This is an example of someone who has an ear infection, so severe pain in the ear, which could be like from an inner ear infection, I'm sorry, a middle ear infection, otitis media, that can uh, precede a labyrinthitis, which would be an inner ear infection. A lot of times people like myself have chronic ear infections when they're a kid, okay, like swimmer's ear and ear infections. And for me, I had a lot of ear infections as a kid, and I didn't think I had any residual problems. But now that I've gotten older and I have chronic migraines, when I get a migraine, I'll have a period of days where I can't move around too much. Then when I get up and start moving around, I actually experience motion sensitivity from some damage to my inner ear that was done when I had chronic ear infections as a child. So there's a, there's a risk here if someone has chronic ear infections that they can have some, um, some damage to their inner ear that might not even show up until they get older and have periods of immobility, okay? Um, so, for example, in my case, I have a hearing loss in my left ear, and I have a vestibular problem in my right ear, and those are both from having chronic ear infections as a child, so where this is going to show up for older adults is, again, after a period of immobility. So they might not even realize they have damage to their inner ear, okay? But then if they have a surgery or they get the flu or for some the depression, some people will get severe depression, um, and they don't move around, they don't move their head too much, that might cause uh, an onset of dizziness and vertigo from a pre-existing inner ear problem that stemmed from maybe chronic ear infections as a child. And vestibular rehab does really well with that, by the way. So this is an example of how an atlas presentation might, might show up. Somebody with pain kind of right where he's pointing. That's going to be an upper cervical issue that might contribute to dizziness and vertigo. Somebody with pain right around there, especially after working on the tablet or the laptop, that's probably going to be an upper cervical presentation like the atlas. And I should also say the second cervical bone, which is called the axis, just to keep you on your toes, also can contribute to dizziness and vertigo. So atlas or axis, which is C1 or C2, can both contribute to dizziness and vertigo. Both of those should be able to be treated by an upper cervical specialist, which would be a physical therapist that's a manual therapist with special training in the upper cervical or a chiropractor with special training in the upper cervical. This is an example I wanted to show you of someone that has back pain around their tailbone with the dizziness, and again, I'm saying this person probably has the atlas problem because of the spine being all connected. This is an example of a position that causes the atlas to pop out. People that sleep propped up with their head cranked to the side can cause the atlas to pop out, and this is one of the reasons that dizziness and vertigo first thing in the morning is usually BPPV, which are the crystals, but can be from the neck if someone sleeps like this. Some other positions that cause the atlas to pop out are like talking on the phone with your head tilted to the side if you hold the phone between your head and your ear. So a headset would be recommended for people that do that to prevent their atlas from popping out. It's very interesting. Atlas problems also cause TMJ dysfunction. So I see a lot of people with dizziness and vertigo that also have jaw problems. And guess what I'm thinking? Atlas. Okay, atlas all the way because that atlas being popped out can cause problems with the jaw because it makes the skull not necessarily be level or it might change the position of the jaw. And so therefore, 
Uh, jaw problems, TMJ, are very closely related to atlas problems, and people may present with dizziness and TMJ for that reason. Here's a, a better look at um, the head. Again, this atlas right here is what I'm talking about. Okay, that's the culprit, okay, sometimes, very often. And then notice how um, if the atlas is in a, um, a subluxed position, meaning it's twisted, tilted, or translated, it's not in alignment, that might cause a repositioning of the skull, okay? And then here's the skull. This is where the inner ear is located, which is inside the temporal bone of the skull. But see, the jaw joint is right there. Okay, and that's why if someone has uh, dizziness, they might also have TMJ, and that's just, it could a lot of times be related to the atlas bone. So typically with these folks, I treat the vestibular-related dizziness, and then I might refer them to a TMJ specialist or an upper cervical specialist, okay? This is just another illustration of, again, how the vestibular system is embedded within the skull. So you can see how the orthopedic problems with the neck translate into neurological problems. This is another time people tend to get dizzy at the dentist. And what do you think this is caused by? What position is her head in? She's leaning back. So this could be BPPV or this could be atlas. Okay, this might also be an issue with the circulation going to her brain. So this could be circulatory problems back here. It could be atlas, or it could be BPPV from her inner ear, or she could have TMJ. So those are the top four reasons people might get dizzy at the dentist. And if someone were to describe to me the length of time of their symptom and the severity of their symptom at the dentist, I could probably figure out which one that was. Okay, people getting dizzy putting in eye drops. What do you think? BPPV or ATLAS typically, okay? And guess what? Neither one of those show up on any diagnostic tests, okay? So now you can see the theme, which is this is a, an underlying cause of a lot of people's dizziness that's getting missed by providers that rely solely on diagnostic tests. Dizziness related to sinus problems and allergies. Interestingly, the sinus is neurologically linked with C2, the second cervical vertebrae or the axis. So someone that has dizziness and has chronic allergies, I'm probably going to refer them for upper cervical evaluation. And also, allergies commonly precede episodes of BPPV. So I get the most busy during allergy season. That's where I get a whole bunch of BPPV cases and usually fix them all in one or two visits, and we're celebrating, and it's the best. So um, allergy season is a big time people get BPPV because commonly sinus problems or allergies will precede an episode of crystals breaking loose in the ear. Um, also, if this person had an upper respiratory infection, that could precede an episode of vestibular neuritis, which again would be that really severe vertigo lasting for days that might land them in the emergency room because it's so bad. Um, dizziness with standing up. This is my grandpa again. Look how fit he is at 96. Um, so dizziness when you stand up and dizziness when you sit up. Um, could both be caused by blood pressure problems. So the key thing here would be to get the blood pressure checked while you're lying down and then get it checked again when you stand up or get it checked while you're sitting and then again while you stand up. But taking multiple blood pressure readings in the different positions can give us a clue if someone's getting dizzy when they stand up because their blood pressure is dropping. Um, commonly, that's going to be a side effect of blood pressure medications. And then uh, that can also be from... Um, Dehydration. It can be from peripheral neuropathy. 
So people that don't have good blood vessels in their legs, might, the blood might pool down in their legs when they stand up. Um, people with low magnesium with nutrient deficiency might get dizzy when they stand. People with adrenal problems and people with carotid insufficiency. So the blood flow is not getting up to their head when they stand up. So this is something that really would be best assessed by a specialist because there's a lot of reasons people get dizzy when they stand up and that can cause falls. But if you just started on a new blood pressure medicine and you notice this, it's probably a side effect of the blood pressure medicine. So one thing that can help people that get dizzy when they stand up is to drink more water. Now, people with kidney problems or heart failure need to follow their doctor's recommendations for hydration because those uh, have specific restrictions on fluid intake. But one thing I've noticed is that a lot of people don't drink enough water because they don't want to pee their pants. Okay, and so what I've done is I've partnered with a specialist in bladder retraining, and I hired her to help me, and I've developed an online course for bladder retraining, which you could get on my website, which has videos and handouts on the exercises that are proven to work in the research to retrain your bladder. And the reason I'm into this as a dizziness expert is because I've met too many people who aren't drinking water because they don't want to have their bladder leak, And so if I can retrain their bladder, they can drink enough water, and then they don't get dizzy when they stand up. And so everyone's happy. The other diagnosis that causes dizziness when people stand up, again, is that diabetic neuropathy or that peripheral vascular disease in the feet. And so I've also developed an intervention that's unique for this problem. Um, It's called the bean box exercises. Has anybody heard of that? I've been teaching a couple hundred providers in this area about it, and it's a set of unique exercises that are done with your feet in a box of beans, and it helps get the sensation and the blood flow and the strength back in the feet. And this would really be good for people who get dizzy when they stand up because they have neuropathy or vascular problems. And it's the way you can tell is people who walk and shuffle their feet on the ground. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. You've seen people walking, dragging their feet or shuffling their feet on the ground. That's a pretty good indication they have peripheral neuropathy. People can have that just from normal aging. They can have a reduced sensation in their feet from normal aging that doesn't have anything to do with diabetes or or a real disease. It could just be from normal aging. So if you see someone who's shuffling their feet and they're also telling you they get dizzy when they stand up, it might be because they're not feeling their feet. They're having problems with the nerves and the blood vessels in their feet. And so I would suggest for them to uh, look at my foot therapy course for reducing fall risk on my website because I've had great outcomes. I had one lady who had no sensation in her feet at all. She did the tr- exercises for six weeks, and she could feel 10 out of 10 points of sensation. So it's been a miracle, and the clinicians I've taught that exercise program to, the Bean Box, have been calling me with great results as well. So I wanted to spread it far and wide using the internet. Now, people who get dizziness while they're bearing down on the toilet doing a number two, obviously I couldn't put a picture of that. This is the closest I can get. So if you're sitting on the toilet trying to do a number two and you're getting dizzy, okay, chances are it's because you're bearing down too hard and that makes your blood pressure go up. And so uh, what you need here, the solution is drink more water and also eat more fiber, okay? That's typically going to help with um, passing a more smooth bowel movement and not getting dizzy. Okay, I see some of you giggling, but this is the reality of the situation, right? Okay, Um, people who are getting dizzy from eating too much salt... 
That's going to be people whose blood pressure is spiking. So that's kind of the opposite of taking blood pressure medicine. Okay, so it can cause a spike in blood pressure, and it can also precede an episode of true Meniere's disease for people who truly have Meniere's disease. So that might be why salt might be a trigger. I've met a number of people recently who have eating disorders, and they're having problems with dizziness because of their blood sugar not being stable, okay? You can also have dizziness with nutrient deficiency, like iron can cause anemia, or if you have low magnesium, that might cause dizziness when you stand up. So you could get uh, nutrient deficiency testing uh, if you're not sure about your diet, you could consult with a nutritionist. And just if you have um, you know, an eating disorder, then that would be something that would require mental health support. Now, stress can cause dizziness. We already talked about this from anxiety, from people holding their breath, people, people hyperventilating, tension in the neck causing the atlas to pop out. Okay? Interestingly, stress can also precede a BPPV episode. Um, So stress is something that we always want to try to manage. Stress can also cause people to drink more alcohol or do recreational drugs, and that can be associated with dizziness. People that are drinking alcohol or doing drugs can have more of a lightheaded or a woozy feeling that's associated with dizziness. So stress is something that we're always looking at when we're assessing dizziness. Then the final tip that I have for you is I've, I've met a number of people who have fallen down trying to put their pants on. Uh, because they were dizzy. So my tip, my take-home tip for you is if you have dizziness and vertigo or if you have any balance problems, sit down and put your pants on, okay? And that includes underwear um, because I don't want any more of you to fall. In fact, uh, I've met a number of people recently who have fallen into things that were hot because it's been cold out, so people getting burned from heaters or um, falling into uh, uh, different freestanding heaters in their houses or furnaces that were hot and then getting big burns on their back or burns on their arms just because it's colder weather for us right now. But, uh, you know, any kind of fall is undesirable. Those can all lead to injuries eventually. And so uh, sitting down, putting your pants on is a good tip for people with dizziness and vertigo. So the take-home message that I want you to start asking if you have dizziness and vertigo is the question that Diane guided me to ask when I found out I was having thyroid problems, which is why? Why is this happening, okay? Because remember, the root cause is going to drive the recommendation. And if you don't know the root cause, then you have less of a chance of a full recovery. So in terms of the root cause, we want to tell our providers what the onset of the symptoms were, what the duration of the symptoms were, and what the triggers seem to be, okay? And then anything further you can provide, like it's constant or it's recurrent or it's only in a certain position, um, those all help. This makes it better. This makes it worse. You have to be your own advocate, okay, because we only have a few minutes with our providers these days. And if you get in there, your provider is going to ask you all the questions your insurance company wants them to ask you, and you're not going to have time to tell them what you need to say or get a good hands-on exam. So you need to kind of go in there prepared with your notes uh, written down of the onset, the trigger, and the duration of your symptoms, And just like this gentleman here, keep a record, keep a journal, and keep asking why until you have a satisfactory answer for all of your symptoms. So this is a place you can find a provider, the Vestibular Disorders Association, vestibular.org. It's an excellent place to find a provider. This is where I refer people who contact me from other parts of the country who can't travel to San Diego. 
Um, finding a physician on here is a great idea for diagnostic purposes, but ultimately most people end up with a physical therapist for the rehabilitation purposes. And physical therapists can provide the comprehensive initial exam, uh, which is what I do for my patients. So just remember, physical therapists improve the way you move, and um, they're great people to consult with if you're having any problems with balance, uh, with pain, anything like that. This is the ultimate goal. This is what I want you all to be able to do, and those of you who are dizzy know this is near impossible. When you're dizzy, the thought of spinning around in a circle on an uneven surface is just totally uh, out of the question, but this would be the ultimate goal of the vestibular rehabilitation would be hopefully for you to be able to get back to living like this. Thank you all so much, and I hope this was helpful. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.